Welcome back to the program. It's always good when we're having legitimate debates about public policy. And when the subject is education, it's even better. However, amidst all the debate, we should not forget that there are people deeply engaged every day in that effort. The children, the parents, and the teachers have real experiences that often trump the ideas of policymakers. That's why it's so important to look deeply inside the system and see what's really going on. That's what my guest, education consultant and researcher Sam Cheltain, has done in his new book, Our School. Sam is a national educator and organizational change consultant based in Washington. He was the national director of the Forum for Education and Democracy and a founding director of the Five Freedoms Project. It is my pleasure to welcome Sam Cheltain here to talk about Our School, Searching for Community in an Era of Choice. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's great to have you here. We'll talk in a moment about the specific schools that you focus on in Washington, but in a broader sense, Washington, D.C. has been in many ways ground zero in so much of the debate about choice and education, about charter schools, about freedom and education. Talk a little bit about why that is and what's been going on there. Sure. It's true. In many respects, D.C. is the tip of the spear when it comes to this evolving national experiment, not just in school reform, but in school choice. Uh, We're now third in the country in terms of the greatest percentage of kids in charter schools. New Orleans is first, and you can guess why, and Detroit is second, and you can probably also guess why. Um, So here in D.C., about 44% of the eligible school kids attend charter schools. But what's also interesting to me, and not something I really understood until I got into the process of writing this book, a majority of kids who attend traditional neighborhood schools are doing so out of boundary. So in D.C., there is this great intra-city migration of kids and of families who are all looking for that elusive uh, high-quality public school, which is, you know, the closest thing that we have to a silver bullet. And and so I guess in, in the sense that D.C. is the tip of the spear, it's a place where there's very active and high-profile, dating back to the days of Michelle Rhee, efforts to try and crack the code of how to produce a more equitable and high-functioning urban system of schools. And it is at this point, it used to be a school system. And now when you look at places like D.C., where almost half the kids are in charters, it really, it's it's a newer notion of how do you build a system of schools that can actually help create um, healthier cities in which to work and live and learn. How much of it in D.C. has to do with, because it really is one of the schools that you talk about, how much of it has to do with so many traditional old neighborhoods gentrifying, and what impact is that having on the way this issue is evolving in D.C.? Yeah, that's a, and so if we take, the, so in the book, I really focus in on on two schools over the course of the 2011-2012 school year. One of them was a first-year charter school. And the other one that you referenced is a 90-year-old neighborhood school in a neighborhood in D.C. called Mount Pleasant. So when this school first opened, uh, just a few years after the end of the First World War, it was seen, and the neighborhood was kind of a haven for um, 
European refugees of that war. Um, then it evolved into one of the neighborhoods that was really an anchor of a very vibrant Latino community here. There's lots of folks from El Salvador, Nicaragua. Um, and then more recently, and by more recently, I mean really over the course of the last 10 years, you have houses that are now becoming million-dollar townhomes. And so if we just look at the name of that school is Bancroft, um, who used to be the Secretary of the Navy, by the way, back in the day. Um, and if we just look at that school, so I really was embedded in a third-grade classroom. And because those changes to the neighborhood are recent, you don't see them generally reflected in the makeup of the third-grade student body. There were 60 kids in third grade, um, overwhelmingly black and brown. Um, I could count the number of white kids on one hand. Um, now, if you go into the preschool classrooms, and, and D.C., it's worth noting, six years ago, D.C. passed a universal preschool law. And so most schools, um, both because of the law and also because everybody is trying to compete with one another and to lock in families early, almost every school offers preschool three and, pre, and pre-K four programs. And if you look at the preschool programs at Bancroft, um, it's the majority white. So what we have are um, student populations, overall student populations that are starting to shift. And when that happens, a school like Bancroft that has historically depended on Title I funding because they're historically serving a majority of kids who are low income, when you start to get a lot of white kids who are middle class, or not just white, but certainly middle class and upper middle class kids in the lower grades, that starts to affect funding formulas, and it would be different if all of those kids were planning on staying at the school. So what happens a lot is folks invest in their neighborhood preschool knowing that they plan on leaving once their kid reaches kindergarten. And the last thing I'll say is even though, you know, D.C. is by national standard, standards a relatively mature market for choice, we're still figuring all of this out. So a school like Bancroft has some real difficult internal calculations to make, not only about what their overall budgets are likely to be, but how they should approach uh, recruitment and retention and what are the different things that different members of the community will be most interested in seeing that school offer and provide. And because of the, the geographic dynamicism that you're talking about, it's what makes the experiment in D.C. with charters so much different in many respects from Detroit or New Orleans. Yes, very much so. Or even, I mean, one thing that's very interesting to me, if we just think about the national landscape of school choice, the, um, the attitude toward choice varies so much based on, on where you are. So, you know, here in D.C., the majority of the charter schools are, for lack of a better way to put it, kind of one-off mom-and-pop charters. So there aren't a lot of folks coming in from other parts of the country to run schools, and there isn't a lot of negativity around the notion of school choice. In fact, there's actually some pretty promising collaboration among the charter community and D.C. public schools. 
then you, you travel up I-95 to New York, and, you know, this has been national news with the new mayor, Bill de Blasio, right. and Eva Moskowitz is one of the more prominent charter leaders, and, and it's like folks are picking sides. So, or then you look at a place like Michigan, where four out of the five charter management organizations in the state of Michigan are for-profit entities. So, so what to me is very interesting is all of these, I mean, question, school choice raises core questions, not only of, of um, quality and strategy, but of community, equity, and democracy. It's the, it's the historic tension of the, the me and the we and trying to figure out ways to kind of create new space for innovative thinking that doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and result in us having even less of a common civic life than we did before. And those are, those are completely unanswered questions in D.C. and every other part of the country, which is why I thought it was important to really try to provide a detailed, up-close human portrait of what that feels like on the ground. And in D.C., how much of it goes back to, in some ways, you mentioned Michelle Ree before, who kind of baked into the system not only charter schools as an alternative, as we've seen in D.C. and as you talk about in Michigan, but really put in there and never sort of lost sight of the underlying idea behind charter schools in the first place was that they should be these kind of living laboratories that public schools, other public schools, could take advantage of. Yeah, well, so one thing that's unusual about D.C. is, so, you know, Michelle Rhee was here for basically four years, and then the the last mayoral election was kind of a referendum on her, and so Mayor Fenty lost, but uh, Rhee's deputy, Kaya Henderson, replaced her as chancellor. Now, we're about to come up on another mayoral election, but the reason I bring it up is that's that's almost eight years of uninterrupted core leadership around some, some policies. That's very unusual. Um, and I think um, it's part of the reason that, that there a, a lot of things have, have changed in, in D.C., not only the high-profile things that made Michelle Rhee on the cover of Time magazine and some of her tough talk about teachers and old ways of doing things. But, you know, like this book is about the 2011-2012 school year. I mean, that's not that long ago. And when I was writing, it was still the wild, wild west for parents when it came to picking a school. I mean, you had every charter school had different um, application deadlines and lotteries and DCPS ran its own totally parallel system. So there was a lot of of um, of just logistical work that parents had to do, which of course becomes a lot harder if you're a parent that's struggling to make ends meet. Um, this year, there was a common lottery for all uh, neighborhood and charter schools. Families had got to choose up to twelve schools. They would, if they got in, they would only get into one, so there wouldn't be duplicates on wait lists. So anyway, I think one of the things that we've seen here is that when you have these different systems that are willing to collaborate, you create a greater likelihood not only that parents can negotiate the system, but that maybe you can get a little closer to, as you said, the original 
vision of charter schools, which is let's let's give some spaces some some opportunities to think more expansively about what teaching and learning should really look like, and then that's not valuable unless we figure out a way to funnel that those insights through the rest of the system and through other schools. But again, it's still very much a work in process here and everywhere else. And talk a little bit about Bancroft Elementary School, one of the two schools that you focus on in in our school, and how that elementary school feels and experiences all these broader things that are going on in the greater area. How is that impacting one particular public elementary school? Well, so I, I spoke previously about the ways in which the demographic shifts are starting to impact the student body. Um, but if I think of the um, just the, the class that I spend time with, the third graders, I chose third grade because that's when the, um, the kind of test culture that No Child Left Behind ushered in. That's when it really begins. And so I, I wanted to see, I mean, I'm a former classroom teacher, but I left the classroom before NCLB was law. And so I've heard the horror stories on one side and the, um, and the success stories on the other. I wanted to see for myself, what's it like to teach third grade in a major city under, you know, high stakes, test-based accountability? What's it like to be a student, and, and one of the things that I observed was I think the level of anxiety that young people feel about the test culture is directly related to the level of anxiety that their teachers feel and project. So the teachers that I observed in that classroom, um, they didn't make a, a big deal about the, the test, and therefore the students didn't really see it as a big deal. On the other hand, one thing that I definitely observed is over the course of an entire school year, I saw a whole lot of reading and math and not a whole lot of anything else. And so to me, the main thing that I observed is it's a real kind of up-close evidence of the fact that I think to a large degree we are still perfecting our ability to succeed in a system that no longer serves our interests. We are requiring schools and teachers to demonstrate hard, poor, measurable growth in just two areas, reading and math, frankly, just because it's the lowest hanging fruit. It's the easiest thing for us to measure and then point to clear improvement or decline as a way to hit ourselves into thinking that we can actually evaluate whether a school is really effective or ineffective. And so until we, until we loosen that up, until we figure out ways to evaluate teachers, schools, and students in a way that is more aligned with what we really want young people to learn about and acquire, and of course, if you ask any parent, I mean, Parents want their kids to develop cognitively, but they also want them to develop socially, emotionally, ethically, physically, linguistically. And good schools tend to all of those developmental needs. But as long as our policy levers only pay attention to the cognitive and really only a narrow sliver of that, um, we're going to have experiences like the one I saw in Bancroft where Teachers are doing the best they can in a system, but the end result is kids receiving a pretty partial um, 
exposure to what they need to be exposed to. It's going to be interesting, of course, to see how all of this that we're talking about is impacted by Common Core and both the curriculum and the new ways of testing within that context. It is. And, you know, there's already starting to be pretty big cracks in Common Core. Indiana is the first state to have opted out. Uh, I'm currently working on a a film for PBS about a town in South Carolina, and so I'm. I know that there's lots of um, pretty barbed rhetoric in South Carolina about Common Core. The Education Secretary Arnie Duncan is trying to get as far away from it as he can. And to me, what's interesting is I think there's real value personally in identifying um, higher quality national standards that help um, kind of urge us to a higher bar and one that is developing a much fuller set of critical um, and creative thinking skills in, in young people. Uh, and, and so, in theory, at least, these standards and those tests will, will reflect that. But, you know, there's, this, is, this is the age-old... Um, challenge in the United States of don't tread on me, which isn't even a civil war rallying cry. It's a revolutionary war rallying cry. And so the unique nature of, of our society, you know, I think the idea of having something that applies to all 50 states and then gives states room to decide the ways in which they operationalize and work towards those standards may be too heavy of a lift um, we'll see. I mean, I think what, what's probably likely to happen is in almost all of these states, you're going to have, you're, you're going to have the eventual adoption of standards that are common core in all or just about everything but name where folks feel the need to rebrand them in ways that reflect, uh, kind of their unique spirit. But you know, the, the governor of South Carolina, she said pointedly, she's like, I don't think, we should be educating South Carolina kids the way they educate California kids. And that's a very powerful, um, deep-rooted argument that kind of gets to some core issues in the American psyche. It's particularly interesting, though, because while there's objection now and all, as you say, these cracks in, in the whole process of moving towards Common Core, that it really was something that started at the grassroots. It really percolated more than most other kinds of, of situations like this from the bottom up with strong support from the business community. Well, I, I know lots of teachers who feel that it wasn't grassroots enough and, and they didn't have enough of an involvement. And this is, this is the challenge. I mean, there's a, there's a, a really, smart guy named Michael Fullen, who's done a lot of writing about um, comprehensive change and systems change in school reform. And, and what Fullen says, and I think he's right and it applies here, is that the only chance you have of bringing about a real systemic shift, and national standards would definitely qualify as a systemic shift, is if you build collective capacity, which has two components. You, you need the technical expertise of some new way of doing it. Let's just assume that's the common core standards themselves. Um, and then you need the emotional commitment. Um, and that seems to me to be the aspect that 
is most lacking and that there are at least sufficient pockets of educators and um, community leaders who lack the emotional commitment to really follow through on an idea like this. Um, and so at this point, it's really a challenge of leadership to find a way, now that the horse has left the barn, to build the emotional commitment. But as I said, if the education secretary is distancing himself from the common core, um, it remains to be seen who will fill that leadership void. What did you find in terms of the engagement, one, but also the knowledge level of that engagement with respect to parents in these schools that you write about? So I followed two parents in particular who were on the outside of either system and trying to choose a school for their basically three-year-olds for the first time. And, um, and so one of them is a woman named Yolanda Hood, who's a lifelong D.C. resident, works for the city, um, and had actually been shopping for schools for her son since he was one. Um, had put together this elaborate Excel spreadsheet with 35 different categories, attended something like 25 different open houses, knew exactly what questions she wanted to ask, entered the in answers into her spreadsheet, and made what has to be the most informed choice imaginable. Um, so Yolanda seems to me to occupy one end of the extreme. And then the other parent, a woman named Karen Copeland, she doesn't occupy the other end of the extreme, but I think she's more typical in that she feels, first of all, a deep ambivalence for the idea of school choice at all. She attended neighborhood schools herself in upstate New York. She says school choice is really a fancy way of branding what is actually school chance. Um, she's not sure what she's looking for, and so she just doesn't know what questions to ask. She sees this brand-new school that's got a glossy brochure and says all these great things, but are they going to do any of these things? And so I think the... Um, the level of uncertainty and ambivalence that Karen feels is more accurate um, for folks. And this, to me, goes back to what we were talking about before, about the ways in which schools are assessed. I mean, you know, you look at a national organization like Great Schools, you know, that that has gets like 44 million visitors to its website a year. And they have lots of information about any school in the country, um, but they've also had kind of a 10-point a, a rating. And up until recently, that rating was determined exclusively by the school's test scores. So, yes, there's lots of other information, but if you're not sure what you're looking for and you see one school has a 9 and another school has a 3, well, you're probably just going to you're going to gravitate towards the, the shortcut that that provides you. Um, great schools is actually in the midst of recalibrating all of that. They realize that, that, that test scores are not the best way, and so they've been in the midst of trying to figure out, in the same way that, you know, the Zagat's Guide isn't just telling you about price, it's telling about price, about uh, reputation, about the quality of the food, about the ambiance, and they kind of average all of those together. So Great Schools is in the midst of trying to figure that out, um, and I think that's really the next key hurdle for schools and communities everywhere, is to make sure that parents have a better understanding of what really good teaching and learning looks like and requires. And that's definitely something that I think 
a reader of our school will be clear on by the time they reach the end of the book. One of the things that the rest of the country and other communities struggling with all of these same issues we've been talking about, one of the things they can learn from looking at the, the Washington experience in general and these two specific schools you've looked at? Well, I think that, so there's an epilogue to the book where I try to leave myself out of the story completely until the epilogue. And then the epilogue is where I, I try to say exactly what I think the main implications are. And so I identify three things, which are, number one, we need to be preparing our teachers, preparing and supporting them differently. Number two, we need to be assessing our schools and our students differently. And number three, we need to recognize that our democracy is something we do, not something we have. So for the, for the teachers, and this is something that every community can immediately be more attuned to, um, I mean, I think it's telling that by the time this, this book is now out, and again, it was just a few years ago that I wrote it, almost all of the teachers I write about are no longer at the school they were during the time that the book was written. And that's because teaching is really unsustainable in its current form. We're, we're, we're in the midst of, of a shift where, you know, the old notion was that it was the job of the student to adjust to the school. Now we're trying to get to a world in which it's the job of the school to adjust to the student. And I think that's right, but that's a lot harder to do if you're a teacher. It's almost impossible to do if you're a teacher and you're still being held accountable to a myopic notion of what constitutes success. And it's really impossible if you're still kind of experiencing professional development and mentoring that's stuck in the old system. So there's some unpacking that has to happen for, for teachers. I've talked a little bit about some of the ways that um, school assessment needs to change. And obviously, I spell, I spell things out much more specifically in the book. But, you know, the last bit, this notion of democracy being something we do, you know, one of the things that, that really stood out to me when looking at this book when it was done is, you know, democracy does not require um, that everybody is equal but it does require that we share in a common life in some way. And, you know, public schools, whether they're traditional neighborhood schools or public charter schools, you know, public schools, are, it's the only institution in America that's guaranteed to reach 90% of every generation, and that was founded with the explicit mission of preparing kids for democracy. So I think a, a relevant question for every community, whether it's rich with school choice or not, is... You know, to what extent are our schools explicitly serving as places that bring the community together in a common vision of what kids are actually going to need for the world that, they, that, that they're entering versus to what extent are our schools still comfortable reflections of the types of schools that we went to as adults? Um, you know, that's the thing. I mean, over the last hundred years, schools are largely unchanged. And so almost all of us that are adults have a very powerful common reference point for what school does and does not look like. And that makes it a lot harder to reimagine education for a changing world. But, you know, the first step, I hope, is being a little bit more clear on the state of the field as it is in order to begin to get closer at at 
clarifying what it ought to be. And finally, how much of what Boston is doing in creating kind of a hybrid of all that we've been talking about, how much of that do you think has value? I'm glad you bring it up. So I, I, I um, last year I produced a 10-part video series about a pilot school in Boston. It's called A Year at Mission Hill. The website is ayearatmissionhill.com. So I'd urge your listeners to check it out. And so pilot schools, as you say, are schools that are still a part of the Boston public school system, but they have charter-like autonomy. So the Mission Hill School that we profiled in this series is a pilot school. And so that means all the teachers are unionized. It means that Mission Hill is subject to everything else that BPS is a part of, but they have some real flexibility when it comes to curriculum, staffing, budget, calendar, et cetera, uh, and governance. And I think there's something to be, to, to be learned from the Boston model um, because there's unquestionable power in charter school communities where everyone has the power to opt in. Um, there's also unquestionable benefits to having a system that's able to make decisions at scale and defray costs and burdens at scale. So one of the things that I really observed over the course of observing these two schools is that each sector is most in need of the other's strength. Districts desperately need more creativity, you know, um, entrepreneurial thinking, etc. And charters desperately need more advantages of scale. So Boston, I think, is a really interesting model of one place that's trying to find the happy medium, and the rest of us need to keep looking for others. Sam Cheltain, the book is Our School, Searching for Community in the Era of Choice. Sam, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 